Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Live from Liverpool, the Dark Paranormal, Season 6. Hi everyone and welcome back to the Dark Paranormal. Firstly, a big thank you to everyone who reached out with feedback and comments regarding last week's episode, The South Shields Poltergeist. I know from many of you who reached out that it's the first time you've heard of this epic encounter. And that really made me happy because I do want these episodes of the more famous cases to sometimes include ones which should be more famous than they actually are. And I believe that in time, the South Shields case will become as famous as Enfield or Amateurville or anything else we think of when we think of the classic ghost story. For today's episode of The Dark Paranormal, we're taking a trip back in time, potentially to an origin story of a trope we all know so well. However, interestingly, there are some parts of the case that we're about to discuss that I think are unique to this case on its own. However, before we jump into today's episode, I do of course need to say a big thank you to each and every one of our Patreons. If you're a fan of the show, When you sign up to Patreon, not only do you allow this independent podcast to continue, but you also receive ad-free early releases of each episode before anyone else. On top of that, you will receive a weekly Patreon-only podcast called Dark Bites, and that runs every week of the year, even on the downtime between seasons. We've built a wonderful community of like-minded paranormal enthusiasts over on Patreon, and we'd like to extend an invitation to you head over to patreon.com forward slash the dark paranormal. Just like these wonderful new team members have. Daniel Nelson, Kaylin Stoken, Jenica, Lauren Miner, Julian Lloyd, Dina Rowe, Heidi Ramos-Chavez, Tracy Dearman, Brianna LeBlanc, Heather Maryson, Ingrid Dixon, Sharon Whittingen, Alexandria McCauley, Callie, 
M, Laura Kerridge, Chelsea Morganweck, Joanne Platts, Stephen Wheel, Heather Smith, Yvonne Hammonds, Tracy Blackett, Lacey, D. Terry, Candice, Peggy Gars, Kate Dart and Julian Brown. Thank you so much, guys. Your support literally allows the show to continue. So if you want to join our team, head over to patreon.com forward slash the dark paranormal. But now it's time to lower the lights. Make yourself comfortable. And of course, leave your disbelief at the door. As we take a look at the great Amherst mystery. In season two, we looked at the infamous case of young Janet Hodgson and the alleged paranormal activity which rained down on her and her family at their home in London's borough of Enfield. It's a case which, due to its popularity, has created many of the tropes we now see in paranormal films and stories worldwide. The vulnerable teenager becoming the focal point of a manipulative and seemingly demonic force now forms the backbone of some of the most successful horror films of the past few decades. But this plotline didn't begin in Enfield. 100 years before Janet Hodgson became a national headline, another vulnerable teenager was about to create the blueprint that many other cases would follow. In everything from powerful activity to powerful allegations. It's August 1878. The Nova Scotian summer was coming to an unwelcome end, signalling the start of the autumn and the creeping in of the deep, dark and cold winter months ahead. 18-year-old Esther Cox sat on her bed, hugging her knees to her chest, staring in a trance out of the window. Yesterday was beautiful, until it wasn't. Esther had been for a date with the local Lothario, Bob McNeil, and the day was wonderful. They rode round in his carriage, taking in the scenery, even stopping for a picnic by the stream. But as the day came to an end, and Esther told Bob she needed to go home, Bob instead drove her deep into the dark woods. After the carriage stopped, Esther rejected each of Bob's advances as they grew in anger, and she screamed at him to stop. Bob, instead, pulled out a pistol from under his cloak, and just as Esther thought she was going to be assaulted, or even killed, a carriage began approaching in the distance, the panicked Bob returned his pistol and angrily whipped at his horses, finally heading back to Amherst to return the terrified Esther. And now here she was, sat, still in shock, in the bedroom she shared with her sister Jane, in the house owned by her sister Olive and her husband Daniel Teed. The family knew something had happened, the previously joyful and energetic Esther was now a recluse. For days they would hear sobbing emanating from the walls. They decided to give her a few days space until her sister Jane moved back into the room they shared. Jane thought Esther was calmer, though still not the person she was 
prior to whatever had happened to her. So that first night, Jane made an effort to not ask so many questions. Instead, they spent the night gossiping about the goings-on in the village that Esther might have missed during her isolation. And you won't believe what happened to the Patterson's son. He was out one night when a noise from under the bed stopped the girls in their tracks. They leaned forward, reaching for each other's hand, and listened. Jane slowly crept to the side of the bed and leant over the side to look underneath. It's the fabric box, she whispered. It's moving. Pass me that stick. Esther reached and grabbed a small pole they would use to close the curtains and handed it to Jane. Jane awkwardly positioned the pole and with a big swipe, the box was propelled into the centre of the bedroom. The girls watched it for a moment in silence. Do, do you think it's a mouse? asked Jane. But before Esther could answer, the box jumped six feet in the air and came down landing on its side. Both girls screamed in fear. Hearing the commotion from upstairs, Esther's brother-in-law Daniel burst into the girl's bedroom. What's all the racket? He asked the terrified girls. Jane nodded her head towards the fabric box on the floor. We think there's a mouse, but... Annoyed that his evening had been disturbed, Daniel kicked the box against the wall before pushing it back under the bed with his foot. Well, that's that dealt with, he laughed heading back downstairs. The girls soon calmed down and continued their evening of gossip before falling asleep in the early hours of the next day. Jane awoke the following morning. She didn't sleep overly well and she put that down to the fact that Esther was making panicked whimpering sounds in her sleep. She rubbed her eyes and looked over to Esther's bed. It was empty. She then became aware of a presence at the foot of her own bed and spun her head around, and there was Esther. She appeared to be standing on the tips of her toes, her face bright red like it might burst, her eyes protruding from the sockets. I'm dying, shrieked Esther. Jane panicked and ran past Esther to the top of the stairs. Come quick, something's wrong with Esther, she screamed. John Teed and Olive managed to physically grab Esther and force her back into bed. A panicked expression was still carved on her face as her eyes darted desperately from person to person. My God, look at that, remarked Jane, as before their eyes, Esther's neck began to swell. Her face was now almost purple, as if it was going to burst. The sound of thunder made everyone in the room duck. Jane ran to the window and pulled back the curtains, and sunlight poured into the room. There was not a cloud in the sky. The room fell silent as everyone had expected to see a storm outside. John was the first to speak. What on earth were... This time the entire house shook, as if something heavy had landed on the roof. John steadied himself against the wall. Olive pointed at Esther. Her breathing had calmed, and the swelling and redness seemed to be clearing. As it did, Esther closed her eyes and fell into a deep sleep, leaving the room of confused onlookers, both confused and terrified. 
How is she? asked Daniel to his wife, Olive. He'd worked all of the following day and had just arrived back early that evening. She's still sleeping, replied Olive. The concern clearly etched on her face. I've never seen anything like this. This just isn't as... The sound of something smashing upstairs interrupted Olive, and both she and Daniel ran up to Esther's bedroom as quick as they could. Once inside, they were faced with a bone-chilling sight. The washbowl next to Esther's bed was now in pieces against the opposite wall. The curtains were billowing in a breeze that seemingly came from nowhere, and on the bed, Esther's body and face had swollen up to the point of being almost unrecognisable. Again, an earth-shuddering sound filled the room, causing pictures to vibrate against the walls. Once more, immediately following the noise, Esther's body and demeanour returned to normal. There's something ungodly about this, said Olive, crossing herself as she spoke. Despite his eyes telling him otherwise, Daniel wasn't so quick to jump to a supernatural conclusion. Nonsense. We'll call the doctor round to check on her before we start jumping to spirits. That evening, the doctor removed the stethoscope from his neck and packed it away in his leather bag. With an almost patronising smile, he addressed Daniel Teed. Nervous excitement, he said, shutting the clasp of his bag. Nothing more, nothing less. The girl's clearly been through some trauma or shock of some sort, and this is simply her body's natural way of... The doctor drifted off as they both stood and watched the bedclothes on Esther's bed be slowly pulled to the floor by unseen hands. Accompanying the now all-too-familiar noise was a breeze which swirled around the bedroom, blowing out the candles which provided the only source of light. In the panicked fumbling and commotion which followed, there was a deep, heavy, scraping sound which reverberated throughout the room. Daniel eventually sourced a paraffin lamp to shed some literal light on proceedings, and the entire room filled with both silence and fear. As there, carved into the wall above Esther's bed, were the words, Esther Cox, you are mine to kill. The following day, the doctor returned, and this time, much to the request of Daniel, he administered sedatives to Esther, largely in the hope that all of the paranormal happenings would cease whilst Esther was unconscious. Unfortunately for the family, this would not be the case, and the Teeds endured being struck by flying ornaments, being pushed by unseen hands, and the continuing banging on the walls and ceilings of the family home. In a startling turn of events, one evening, it appeared that the spirit haunting Esther Cox wanted to speak. It started with the tortured Esther asking aloud if the spirit could hear her, an eerie rapping confirmed that it could. She was soon joined by John and Olive, by Dan and Jane. John wasn't convinced and wanted to know if it could tell how many people were now in the room. With each passing knock, John stared at the five people in the room, watching their hands for signs of fraud. None of them moved. 
Let's have a quick break to talk to you about Policy Genius. Now, we all like to put off life insurance talk because it reminds us of our mortality. But life insurance isn't about death, it's about life. It's about ensuring the lives of those you love remain secure and comfortable. And I'm sure many of you will think, well, I'm covered through work or I'm covered through my bank account. But believe me, you want to check those finer details because you may be surprised what you're actually covered for. And this is exactly where Policy Genius come into their own. Yes, we could talk about how Policy Genius is America's leading online insurance marketplace or how their award-winning agents will walk you step by step through the entire process. But the best thing about Policy Genius for me is they don't have a dog in the fight. They're not going to strong arm you towards one company or another. They've no incentive to do so. Their only incentive is to listen to your needs, scour America's top companies, and find you the best price. For example, with Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that begin at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options even offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. There's a reason why Policy Genius has thousands of five-star reviews on Google and Trustpilot, and you'll find out what it is when you tick life insurance off your to-do list with Policy Genius. So head over to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you can save. That's policygenius.com. Daniel's reticence to involve the church was now waning, and even he began to believe maybe the answer lay with a higher power. And so they called on the local minister, the Reverend Clay, to investigate further. I'm Reverend Clay, Esther. Pleased to meet you. The Reverend sat on Esther's bed, smiling. Your family are very worried about you. They say... The Reverend stared intently at Esther's hands, both of which sat on top of the bedclothes and in full view. Did you do that, girl? he asked. Esther shook her head. The Reverend shifted uncomfortably on the bed. Then who do you think is making these noises? Esther shrugged. Hmm, muttered Clay, as if trying to work out just how this trick was being played on him. Esther, may I ask? A cup which was on the bedside table flew over the reverend's head and smashed against the wall behind him. Extraordinary, the gobsmacked reverend muttered to himself. After spending around an hour with Esther, Reverend Clay came downstairs to the rest of the family. Hoping for some clear and thought-out spiritual plan, the family were taken aback when not only did he not advise for a blessing nor an exorcism, he instead posited his theory that whatever trauma Esther had experienced had made her an electrical conduit, a battery of sorts, and that whenever the charge inside her became too much it would unleash itself out into the surrounding atmosphere. Theories are all well and good, but it did not help Esther. Nor did it help Daniel, who was now growing tired of both the constant activity and also the village gossip. You see, little did Esther know, but the occurrences had become widespread news in the town. Not only that, but her name was also being dragged through the mud. Villagers who wondered why the Cox girl was making up stories in order to get attention. For Daniel, the final straw would come following an honest revelation from Esther. Tell Daniel what you've just told me, said Jane, who'd brought Daniel up to Esther's bedroom. 
Well, began the coy Esther, fidgeting with her fingernails on top of the covers. I've just heard a voice. And what did it say, girl? asked Daniel. Olive had now come into the room too to see what the fuss was. She's heard a voice, said Daniel to Olive. Saying what, Esther? asked Olive. It said, I walked the earth a long time ago, but I don't anymore. The group looked at each other. Is that it? asked Daniel. No, said Esther, looking at her nails. It said the house will burn down tonight. As she finished her last word, a lit match fell from the ceiling. Daniel ran over and stamped it out. Yet another fell, and another. Daniel frantically run round, stomping each flame out. Good God, Esther, make it stop. It's not me, yelled Esther. Finally, the matches stopped appearing, and all seemed calm. But then a dress which was hanging on the door was pulled down. It rolled into a ball and flung itself under the bed, whereupon it instantly burst into flames. Get out of bed, Olive screamed to Esther, whilst Daniel used the curtain pole to remove the burning ball and again stomp it out. From here, it would appear whatever was haunting Esther Cox had took a sharp turn for the violent. Washing dishes with Olive just three days later, Esther noticed smoke rising past the kitchen window. The cellar was now on fire. A passing stranger managed to extinguish the blaze, but suspicions began to rise around Esther, and she didn't help her situation when she divulged to Olive that the spirit had warned her it would burn the house to the ground unless... She leaves for good. On hearing this, Daniel Teed had no choice. He demanded Esther leave. Local restaurateur John White, a known pillar of the community, was not one to see a young girl destitute on the streets, and so he offered young Esther a place to stay. However, any hopes that the spirit would now leave Esther alone were dashed one late evening, a month after she moved in, while she prepared for bed. Esther looked at herself in the bathroom mirror. She wondered why this was happening to her. What possible reason would something have to terrorise her like this? Why would... Something sighed in Esther's right ear. She froze. She began to slowly turn around and... A hand viciously slapped her across the face. Just about getting herself back together, another hit across the other cheek. She held her face and ran down into the White's living room. John White and his son Fred jumped to their feet on seeing Esther appear in the doorway. She tried to explain what was happening, but she fell forward, clutching at her back. As she turned around, Fred could see blood trickling down her nightgown and from the source just between her shoulder blades, a small clasp knife was jammed in her back. Fred surged forward and removed the knife, placing it in his right-hand pocket whilst John led her to the couch. Fred watched on, bewildered, as the clasp knife was once more in the same place, between Esther's shoulders. He frantically frisked his pockets, but the knife was gone. Somehow it had materialised itself out of his pocket and straight into Esther Cox's body once more. 
the negative attention of housing Esther was one thing. But should she be murdered by the spirit, surely the blame would go on John and his son Fred. So, with the risk far outweighing the reward, Esther Cox was sent back to the begrudging Teed family. This time around, though, Daniel Teed didn't seem as scared or as eager to rid himself of Esther Cox. And perhaps that was down to his new lodger, one William Hubble. Hubble had heard about the goings-on in the house and was keen to observe Esther. He also let Daniel know in private that if everything went according to his plan, there could be money to be made from the situation. Hubble praised Esther as something of a miracle. He encouraged her to interact with the entities as much as she could, so he could document the outcomes. One evening, Hubble organised a séance at the family home. I'm not sure about this, Esther muttered under her breath. Nonsense, my dear, this is the only way we can start pinning down definite answers from whatever this is that's attacking you, replied Hubble with a smile. But I don't want answers, I just want it to stop. Hubble nodded empathetically and rubbed Esther's arm. We all do, dear, we all do. But if we find out what it wants, we can use that to get rid of it, you see. Esther gave an almost imperceptible nod in agreement. And so, curtains were closed, candles were lit, and Hubble himself led proceedings. We'd like to speak to the spirit attached to Esther. Is that possible? I'll take that as a yes. Hubble smiled at the sitters in the room. Using a rudimentary code system, he asked the spirit to knock a number of times to correspond with each letter of the alphabet and the spirits obliged. Before the evening was done, a spirit by the name of Bob Nickel had made his presence known. He stated he was a shoemaker who had died near the property many years before, and that he had chosen Esther Cox to be the focus of his malevolence. The whole seance seemed to drain Esther and fill those present with fear. All except William Hubble. For Hubble, this was exactly what he wanted to happen. Live paranormal happenings in front of a real audience. You see, for Hubble, this was a dress rehearsal. One for a show he was hoping to reproduce night after night, for a tour that he'd already planned and paid for. With the troubled Esther Cox and her literal demons being his main act. Surprisingly, Esther was keen on the idea. Her reputation in town was in tatters. She was constantly being attacked by people who believed the whole thing was a hoax. Plus, her entire home life was just as anxiety-ridden. So, faced with the life she had, or the prospect of money and travel, she opted for the latter. However, the concerns about trickery and fraud travelled to each town they visited, and very early on on their paranormal tour, a riot broke out in the audience when a group of sceptics tried to get to Esther. Returning to Amherst as quietly as she could, Esther found both work and lodging with a man named Arthur Davidson. Not one for local gossip, 
he found Esther to be a solid and dependable worker, and he was eternally grateful for a chance to start again. That was until one evening, when Davison heard a roaring sound coming from behind the house. Running around to see where the noise was coming from, he found Esther Cox, staring in almost a trance at the mighty inferno that was now engulfing one of his main barns. Esther proclaimed her innocence in the courtroom. She broke down in tears as the judge refused to believe her tales of the supernatural and sentenced her to four months in prison for arson. It's believed that on her release, all supernatural activity stopped. Or, given her experience when trying to be honest, maybe she just decided to no longer tell anyone. The case of Esther Cox is one of the most divisive paranormal cases in history. One claim that's never been disputed is the fact that Esther Cox was almost sexually assaulted at gunpoint by a man named Bob McNeil. And I'm sure that more than one pair of ears pricked up during this tale when the name Bob Nickel came up as the evil spirit that was tormenting Esther. One theory put forward by the American Society for Psychical Research in 1919 was that Esther Cox was responsible for the phenomena, but that she was doing it in a dissociative state, meaning she could be absolved of malicious trickery if it was done whilst she was not conscious of doing it. Another researcher of the case, a certain Dr. Prince, makes note of the fact, quite blatantly, that William Hubble had a lot to gain by this being perceived as a real event. He also reminds us that large swathes of the story of Esther Cox are only derived from the book written by William Hubble about the case. And of course that due to the tour and the book sales, Hubble would be the only beneficiary of such a fraud. And I quote, The most unreliable witness, naturally, is Hubble himself. For what use would his book have been if it not have told of amazing occurrences? There is no corroboration by others of the incidents he claims to have observed, only his own sworn affidavit, which, of course, he reproduced on the cover of every copy from 1888 onwards, that he actually saw and heard the phenomena as stated. Quite the savage review by Dr. Price. However, what we must remember, or we must at least consider, is the fact that a large part of these occurrences happened before Hubble became involved. Remember, Hubble, according to this version of events, arrived after the carving in the wall of Esther Cox, You Are Mine to Kill, and even after Esther had been stabbed in the back by whichever spirit was doing the terrorising. And I find it hard to believe that either Esther Cox nor her entire family would go along with such fantastical tales to make another man wealthy. As for Esther Cox herself, she went on to marry and have a family, and moved away from Amherst. And I always wonder, did the town she went to start having some unexplainable fires break out? Or perhaps even right now as I speak, one of Esther's grandchildren is sat wondering what that knocking sound is in the wall. 
Thank you for once again choosing to spend your time with me here on The Dark Paranormal. I'll speak to you all again next week for episode 4. And of course, to our Patreons, I will speak to you on the weekend for the next episode of Dark Bites. But until then, remember, when you discuss the paranormal, always try and leave your disbelief on the coat rack. And I'll speak to you next time on The Dark Paranormal. <laughs>